The following is a production of differentbrains.com. Welcome to Spectrumly Speaking. I'm Becca, your house autistic, mother to many, many fur babies, and really happy to be staring at my 2017 calendar that I finally opened in July. (laughs) (laughs) And I am Dr. Kate Cody. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist uh, in New York, and um, I work with kids through adults on the spectrum. I supervise grad students, and I conduct um, diagnostic evaluations. So, Becca, how was your week? My week was pretty good. Um, I am really busy, for, oddly. I always think August is going to be slow, and then it ends up being like July gets crazy, and then somehow it slides into August, and then summer's gone. So I'm trying to do that differently this year, but I'm doing a pretty terrible job at it so far. Um <laughs> So it's really hard. I think, you know, we have so many limited days in New York that, you know, that you're either it's raining or it's too hot and humid. You can't go out. So when you get those good days, it's hard to not take advantage of them. And then they end up packing together. So we'll beat. (laughs) How was your weekend? I took this weekend as a restorative weekend and I went to yoga and I went to a meditation and I cooked and had downtime with my cats. So it was a really, it was, it was a great weekend. (laughs) (laughs) It's awesome. I mean, I do have news to share, but I'm, I don't know when this is going to come out. So you guys, I don't know how long down the road you'll hear this, but just got a puppy. So Walter has a little sister now or another (laughs) little sister, I should say this one of the same species. Her name is Penny. And, um, so she's new. She's brand new in my house right now. And it's really hard to leave because I don't want to leave her right now. <laughs> it's very exciting. I can't wait to meet her. Yeah, I'm excited um, for that. So today our guest is uh, Gina Moravic, who is um, the owner of Sunrise Speech and Language Services and is a New York State licensed and ASHA certified speech language pathologist. She has worked with individuals on the autism spectrum ranging in age from 2 to 65 years in a multidisciplinary setting for 14 years. She has expertise in social communication assessments and therapeutic interventions. Gina is known in the autism community for her social communication language evaluations, which target higher order language content and social use um, and problem solving via standardized and informal assessment uh, measures. Gina has a special interest in females on the spectrum and has co-authored Girls Growing Up on the Autism Spectrum, What Parents and Professionals Should Know During the Preteen and Teenage Years, which was published by Jessica Kingsley Publishers. She's also an adjunct professor at Long Island University, CW Post, as a part of the Concentration in Autism and Special Education Program. She has presented at the local, state, national, and international levels for various professional organizations and has earned three ACE awards from ASHA for her participation in continued education and training. Welcome, Gina. Uh, Thank you guys for having me so much. (laughs) Thank you. And I'm a mom of fur babies too. So yay. (laughs) So excited. We're three moms of fur babies in here. So Uh good. (laughs) Kitty play dates. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, So Gina, just To get started, could you tell us a little bit about the difference between most standard kind of speech and language evaluations um, and kind of the assessment of 
pragmatic communication or social communication? Sure, I would love to. Um, it's there's are more options obviously for younger individuals according to standardization and what the norms are for that particular test or the range of tests that are available. As you get older, unfortunately, there are not as many standardized assessments. So if we're looking at using language specifically to establish and maintain relationships for social problem solving, communication-based problem solving, we're really at a little bit of a loss for what we can use for our adults because there aren't as many tests that are available. So when I do an evaluation, one of the things that, whether it's for a male or a female, and for especially adults, one of the things that I have to use heavily is more of an informal assessment of conversational skills, social problem solving, um, and really looking at the quality of a person's communication and interactions. Um, also the frequency, but the quality is huge. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the younger ages and grades, um, I can use standardized tests, and yes, they are helpful. However, like many of the individuals that you know as well, I work with very intelligent young men and women um, and older men and women. So because of that intelligence, they're able to answer a question correctly, they might come to it or get to the answer in a different way. It might take a little bit more time. Um, the quality of the answer might be slightly different, but sometimes they're able to answer those questions. So if I'm grading according to standardization, it does look, quote unquote, like the, you know, you're in the normal or you know, average range score. But when I compare that to the other abilities, that this individual has that are you know, way in the superior range, it shows a relative weakness that, unfortunately, the more verbal and um, the more intelligent someone is, the more that disparity doesn't always get recognized or acknowledged. And, and it, it causes a gap and, and impedes their ability to function and function efficiently and with less anxiety during that process in their day-to-day -day interactions. Yeah, and that's certainly something that I have dealt with. Absolutely. It, there are times for me when processing takes a while, but because I'm such a verbose person <laughs> by nature, mm -hmm. it's um, people are taken aback by the fact that there are times when that does happen. It's part of the you don't look autistic game that I get all the time. Um, right. So, yeah, but when I'm tired and I'm stressed or I'm having sensory overload, that changes for me. And people don't see it, but they should hear it um, when I'm speaking. So that's fascinating to me. Um, yeah. So in terms of that, actually, really, this leads right into the next question. How do you assess a person's functioning in the office versus in real world settings? Mm -hmm. um, it depends on the person's commitment to their own mindfulness and observation. And I'm very fortunate that I have several clients right now that are really dedicated to the process. So for example, um, if I ask a question like, when you walk into the office in the morning, do you greet the people that you're sitting next to? Do you ask how their weekend was? Some of my clients are not paying attention to those things or aware that they need to do that. 
so it's not on their radar. When I introduce it as something that does need to be on their radar, then I actually have someone who's wonderful and takes copious notes and said, oh, wait a second. A matter of fact, I wasn't doing that, but I'll do it this week and I'll do it for you three days out of five. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I'll go to lunch with people two days out of five, even though it's not something that he prefers to do. He's kind of journaling and recognizing that he, in order to not only keep the job, you know, got the job that he wanted, but to secure the job he wanted and also be approached for advancements and opportunities that he does have to do some of that social faking and interaction in the office that he might not normally do. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's really important. And for my clients that really buy into the process and are willing to take the time to allow themselves to be uncomfortable at first, it, it works wonders. And, and I assess for starting at a baseline of zero for greeting coworkers or acknowledging someone else's weekend if they overhear them talking about their weekend, you know, little, little things like that that aren't so little. If our baseline is zero, then I'm shooting for, you know, 50% within the first two weeks and then we're going upwards from there. Mm -hmm. So I have to look at it from more of a like a qualitative and quantitative, but I also, I don't send any of my clients or if I'm evaluating someone, I don't expect someone to, go into the office tomorrow and have a 10 minute long conversation with someone when that's not their norm, mm -hmm. because that's not fair to do or ask someone to do. Yeah. Gina, from your observations, um, how do pragmatic communication difficulties present differently between men and women on the spectrum? Good question. Um, in general and across both men and women, actually for a second, there's, I guess more of a passive role in communication that I seem to observe and, and see as this kind of continuous thread um, and this uncertainty of when to initiate, when to engage, and what are the rules hidden or not that determine those things. From a female male perspective and difference, I do notice that a lot of the females that I work with and have evaluated on the spectrum are still more in tune with their emotions and are able to discuss a range of emotions and do a little bit more of the social faking um, without as much of a reminder mm. than the male clients I have. However, I also notice that my female clients are also, because of that, or probably because of that, more anxious mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. take a longer time to kind of come back and wind down after they have to quote unquote perform or engage in the social fake. Whereas my male clients, not to say that they're not anxious because they are, but they have a different way of expressing themselves when they are. And they certainly don't go into the same degree of, of sharing their emotions with other people. That my female mm -hmm. One of the things that you just said that I think is important that we follow up on is you kind of you talked about like the idea of the social fake. Mm -hmm. um, and and I think that um, 
you know, there's there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not individuals on the spectrum should be engaging in the social fake, what the value is of, of doing so. Um, could you elaborate on kind of how you've integrated that into your practice a little bit? Part of what I'm trying to instill is that being people of the interaction and the people that you're interacting with and knowing that they have certain expectations that they do want met. So for the sake of, especially in the workplace, especially in school and places where you're expected to be more aware of that and mm-hmm. more comfortable with that, that yeah. there are necessary things that you kind of have to put out of your mind that you might be personally thinking and allow the other person to take up more room in your brain than you normally would. Mm-hmm. So, you know, commenting on something they said, whereas normally it might not be of interest to you to do so, but just to let the other person know that you're valuing what they're saying and their time together. Um, knowing when to social fake, why to social fake, where to social fake. Um, and, and more importantly, and what I find a lot of my clients really benefit from, is I take that original question of social faking and then I kind of turn it into, well, being aware of your own needs and values and wants mm-hmm. and knowing what kind of people, because you're never going to find someone exactly like yourself. It's impossible for anyone. Um, but knowing what kind of people you do enjoy being around more than others. So, for example, um, if I ask someone, what are your pillars? What are the things that resonate the most with you? And they tell me someone who's confident, someone who's truthful, someone who's friendly, then I, I wouldn't expect you to be at ease with the social fake for someone who didn't meet those parameters or criteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, we talk about it so much um, as, you know, spectrumites as advocates, I talk about it a lot. Um, we've talked about it amongst ourselves, the social fake. And I, this is a line that I worry about too, especially when I'm teaching the improv, because in essence, what I'm trying to give people through the improv and um, is, is sort of that idea of being able to practice your social fake, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it gives them an environment to do it, but there are a lot of us, and especially uh, the women who get diagnosed late in life, who, who are very resentful and angry about having to do any social fake once you know they find out their diagnosis. Um, so it's been an interesting conversation for me, how far I think people need to go. And I, I have sort of now caveated in the way where I say to people, well, if you're going into a situation and you want to get in and out of there as fast as possible because it's uncomfortable for you and you want to be successful in your venture, you have to go in prepared. So you go in, you know, ready. You go in, We, you know, we did scripting for a long time for people and there's a piece of that that I think is valuable. And that is, and when you get that, get well, get really good at it, you get um, that social fake. That's the result of that. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting piece in there for me, too, because for myself, I, I still have to do it. I think every human being has to do it to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. and I think from like the psych perspective, the thing that I really think about is is kind of the concept of it's mindful decision making. Mm-hmm. And um, but I really like how, Gina, how you're kind of describing like the pillars that a person holds on to and what they need in social relationships and using that to kind of guide their decision about whether or not they're going to engage in this social fake or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All okay, right. We're, we're going to be 
dealing with others that we don't prefer. And that's for all of us. So when we're around other people that we prefer or don't prefer, it changes the demands on our communication, on our emotional capacity. Mm -hmm. So going in prepared and knowing what those levels are and how to adjust your communication accordingly and knowing, like Rebecca was just saying, knowing how to exit successfully Mm -hmm. and, you know, quickly if you need to. But just having that going into a situation is a night and day difference. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so essential. And it was, it's almost like we, I started to do it myself, but um, I needed to be taught it very specifically, or I needed to be mindful about it, I needed to be aware that it was going on, so I could do it better. But without that awareness, without that mindfulness, it was not something that I could have ever gotten better at. So um, I just think that's the, the, a piece of life as a human. Um, but I will continue with our questions because there's more. Um, <laughs> so can you just tell us a little bit about what you look for in social communication evaluation? Sure. So one of the things I look for in an evaluation in social communication is the person's ability to engage me in a conversation when there's a brief pause or moment of silence. I look for whether or not if I put a statement out there, not necessarily a question, but a statement, will the person then come back with a follow-up question or another statement that relates to what I had just said, just to keep the conversation and the flow going. Um, At the end of an evaluation, if I'm doing most of the talking and getting one or two word answers, and it's happened in the past where, you know, we've done evaluations and there might be other comorbid diagnoses like anxiety or depression, then I also want to look to historically and currently the quality and flexibility of the person's communication for just purely social purposes. So being able to talk about nothing is a pretty important skill and determination, um, determining factor in those evals. Talking about people and relationships and what brings you comfort. So an example for, for that would be when I ask someone about their work and primarily what they do and what they enjoy, and they're talking to me just about the work itself and not coworkers. That's pretty significant because most of the time it's, I shouldn't say most, a lot of the time um, it's reversed. So people will talk about their coworkers or their experiences at work and not so much their actual task or job because that's what's comforting for them. Yeah, because as you were listing the topics to talk about, my brain was going, nope, nope. No, 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 like not interested, not interested, not interested. It's like, you know, the minute you said how to talk about nothing, I was like, no, I mean, really, like my brain, it it is really, really hard for my brain to do. It's crazy. I mean, I think we all have our moments um, where engaging in that kind of small talk can be a bit unbearable. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think it's important to kind of connect the dots. So how from your how do you see that kind of social communication difficulty impacting a person's adaptive social functioning? Sure. Well, if you could imagine always feeling like you're kind of walking on eggshells, I think that many of my clients would describe that to you. And whether it's, you know, the chicken or the egg came first, but that feeling of not knowing what to say, not knowing when to say it, not knowing who to say it to, um, it causes a lot of 
withdrawal and anxiety and hesitation. So if I have a session and I'm sitting here and it happened a couple of weeks ago, and I forgot what my client said specifically, but when I tell you we were hysterically laughing, the point where we were like tearing, that's how much we were laughing. And when we got done, he, he reflected, he was like, that felt really good. I hadn't laughed like that in a really long time. Yeah, it's a real, when that moment, those moments of genuine experience with another person um, are so new and fresh when they happen for us, it's like, oh, that was interesting. Because so much of it is, is spent in anxiety world, just going, okay, I know this is going to be nerve wracking, but I'm going to go do it anyway. You know, like mm -hmm. that's how it usually is. Um, so that's always nice when, when the reverse happens. And I think if we can work towards having more of those positive experiences and being mindful about where we are and what we're saying, um, I think having many successes in a row kind of encourages us to keep going. Well, I thank you so much for your time. Um, can you please tell everybody where they can find you um, if they're looking for you? Sure, absolutely. So I have several locations, um, New York, Valley Stream, and on the island, and they can visit my very long website. So I am sorry because it's a long one. G Moravic, which is my last name, M O R A V is in Victor, C is in Cat, I K, at Sunrise, S is in Sam, L is in Larry, P is in Paul, S is in Sam, V is in Victor, C is in Cat, S is in Sam dot com. So it's very long one. I apologize. One day I'll get around to working out a shorter name for the website. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, we're going to move on to a post discussion um, that we've asked you previously to stick around for um, because yeah. there is so much to talk about uh, when we talk about women on the spectrum and we talk about the female phenotype and the specific challenges that we as women kind of face on the spectrum and, and how they're different uh, from mm -hmm. the experience with men. And since we are a women's podcast, uh, we would like to talk about that a little bit. And we're glad to have you join us on the topic. Oh, thank you again. My pleasure. One of the things that I think we started to talk about that you started to talk about, um, which I love so much, is the mindfulness ideas. Um, mm -hmm. I still myself struggle with quieting my brain enough to do meditation. But in the beginning, just the ideals, when we talk about pillars of, of ideals, um, those ideals for me were really big guiding lights for me in terms of body awareness, in terms of interoception, in terms of um, just what I needed in my life. Um, so mm -hmm. kind of, how, can you tell us how you've incorporated mindfulness techniques into the speech and language area for people? Yeah, sure. So um, it, it's nice because it's it can vary. So it could vary from specifically working on nasality, which it sounds minor, but people will actually perceive nasality and can perceive it to be either snobby or rude or passive. Mm -hmm. And it does affect someone's opportunities. So I've had requests to specifically target that. And that I kind of like because I get to put my speech geek hat on and go into some speech science and changing the shape of your vocal tract. Um, and resonance and chambers and whatnot. So it's kind of fun for me mm -hmm. too. In terms of volume, in terms of being mindful of, mindful of what you're projecting. So some of my clients do like when I do this. And of course, I always tell them at the beginning of therapy that I might do this, but I don't tell them the exact moment. So I, I record my clients. I tell them that at the beginning of our work, that there are times where I might do this, but I don't always tell them when I'm recording them because I want to catch them 
in their natural mm-hmm. state of communication. So some like it, some don't. And the reason why they do like it is because if I'm asking you to be mindful of how you're communicating and how other people are perceiving you, it's hard to sometimes envision or imagine. But if I record you and then I show you the recording, then you can see for yourself. And then I can turn and ask, well, how would you perceive yourself if mm-hmm. you were watching yourself communicate or listening to yourself communicate? And it's very powerful and really helpful. It is. I, I do something similar in the improv because, and I think that like this is a hand in hand idea. They really are the same. It's it's sort of, you know, I I really do a lot of mirror techniques where the idea is to, to practice mm-hmm. in the mirror what what's going on on your face because you may feel like you sound a certain way and you're making a certain expression, but that's not how the other people that are looking at you are necessarily reading you. So, you know, practicing what it feels like to be in your skin when you're making um, the face that you're looking to be making or using the tone of voice that you want to be using, <clears throat> being able to control all of that in the situation. I still struggle with it. The more excited and interested I am in a topic, the louder I get and my volume control and my speed is totally off. It's it's like I'm shooting information at people out of my mouth. It's crazy. Um, and so I need to, you know, it's sort of the opposite side and people are like, you know, what does that mean? And how is, what is it like? It's like the opposite end of, of being on the nonverbal side of the spectrum. I communicate so quickly that even my own brain and other people's brains can't keep up so that the communication isn't happening at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a, an interesting piece for me. Mindfulness has helped me to be aware that is going on um, because mostly I'm just in my thoughts talking about it. Um, so right. you know, it's been helpful in terms of monologuing and things like that uh, for with people. Um, Absolutely. So. And also being mindful of, you know, like a lot of my clients and I'm sure you would agree with this too. Like, again, having a very detailed mind. So when you're, when you're that detailed, sometimes you're processing things that the other person doesn't necessarily need or, you know, have a use for in that exchange. Mm-hmm. So just being mindful of when you're going in that deep, because sometimes going in that deep takes twice as long to get out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. One of the other things in my work is um, a lot of like rehearsal opportunities. So, yeah. um, you know, the grad students that I train become very accustomed to getting pulled into sessions uh, so that my clients have opportunities to practice whatever kind of uh, social communication strategy we're working on. Um, and, and that's kind of also pairing it with the anxiety around it being with a new person, but in a supportive setting where your therapist is there and we can actually work on the, the underlying skills in, in a way where there's an opportunity for direct feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there's so many different ways to kind of target that, like increased mindfulness and self-monitoring. Um, but a lot of it really, I think comes down to whether it's in a therapeutic setting or Becca, I think you've even talked about like kind of having safe people that, you know, you can ask for that feedback. Yes. From. Yeah. And at this point too, I, I now I'm trying this out. So people I'm experimenting out there in the world. But now that I have a boyfriend and he's with me as a business partner and also in social situations, it's been sort of interesting for me to have somebody next to me who can sort of like clue me in when I'm going too long or let me know when I should be listening because somebody's talking to me. And, you know, little things like that where those were social mistakes that I couldn't adjust for myself. But having a support person around is really helpful to me. Um, And I know that 
you know, people often for me, they look and say, you know, you don't look autistic and you don't really need those things. And, that, you know, because many of my struggles are internalized and they are things that only I experience that they aren't, you know, experienced out there um, in the world. And so that mm-hmm. kind of leads me and Kate into the place we, we wanted to talk about, which is, you know, what it's like for women on the spectrum versus men on the spectrum and mm-hmm. how that affects our social communication. Yeah. And one of the things too that I, I see guys in, in my females is there's also this whole other dynamic inside, especially my tweens and my teens in texting and social media. It's a really, really different place than when we grew up and we didn't have those things. So mm-hmm. for them to monitor the frequency and the content of what they're posting, what they're texting, um, being responsive, but not overly responsive being able to assert yourself even in a group chat and a group thread is really, really important. And mm-hmm. the females experience that so much more than the males do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's um, one of the things that I always talk about, which is a different experience entirely now, but girls were really mean when I was growing up, like really mean. And when you're, when you have social blindness and you're, you're struggling in those areas and you make a social mistake, they don't even make fun of you to your face. You usually hear it behind your back. Um, and so you don't even know that you've made a mistake until you hear somebody talking about it. Um, or you get, um, isolated from a social situation, um, or bullied, I guess, for that matter. Um, and Mm -hmm. I myself was all of the, had all of those experiences. And then as a result, I kind of boomeranged and became the bully myself, um, Mm -hmm. because it was easier for me. I was fast with words, so that would save me. Um, and you know, that's a, a place that's, you know, hard, I think, for girls, but especially at that age when when the social complexity of what's going on for girls versus boys is so intensely different mm-hmm. um, that, you know, it was too much too soon and it affected school for me. It affected everything for me. And um, I think that those are the pieces that asking kind of the older women on the spectrum what those experiences are like, because we are now in a developmental place that we can articulate about it. Um, so that we can help out the girls that can't quite articulate for themselves yet what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those those are the pieces that I would like to see addressed in our community and, and you know, have supports for those things. Absolutely. Well, and I think, Gina, you bring up another thing that I think will have to be a topic for a future, uh, yes. which is the technology and how um, communication via technology has really um, in some ways really helped many individuals on the spectrum, but there's also still a lot of potential for kind of those gaps in communication um, and how that can sometimes, you know, significantly impact a person's functioning and, and you know, technology is that double-edged sword. Mm-hmm. I think we should definitely do an episode about that. going to wrap it up for today. Thank you, Gina, for being here. Can you once again, please tell everybody where they can find you? Sure. Thank you guys for having me. You can find me at G Moravik, M-O-R-A-V-C-I-K at sunrise, S-L-P-S-V-C-S.com. Be sure to check out differentbrains.com and check out their Twitter at differentbrains and look for them on Facebook. If you're looking for me, you can find me at www.beccalori.com or you can go and search for me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.
And I can be found at Dr. Cody at spectrumpsychservices.com or spectrumservicesnyc.com. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and don't hesitate to send questions to spectrumlyspeaking at gmail.com. And let's keep the conversation going. Spectrumly Speaking is a production of Different Brains. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.